I've been in interviews where someone will say Edible Arrangements is a granny brand. I love granny brands. Is there ever a time when it's not appropriate to send an edible arrangement? There could have been that somebody doesn't like fruit. And I would, of course, give them a weird look. Do you have any data that suggests people are hate sending edible arrangements? Uh, I don't know. I'll have to ask the team on that one. How do you get them to justify paying for a quote-unquote overpriced fruit? Hello, I'm Ruth Umo, Leadership Editor and host of Fortune Executive Exchange. Today, I'm joined by CEO Tariq Farid and his eldest daughter and Edibles President, Soumya Farid, to discuss Edibles' rise from a flower shop to a floral-shaped fruit delivery service and now a global retail gift destination projected to rake in over $500 million in sales this year. This is what happens when you sit, you forget everything. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. It's like that Men in Black tool. What, what, exactly, where am I? Exactly. <laughs> Welcome both of you to Thank Fortune you. Executive Exchange. Thank you so much for joining us. Quite a lot to get into. I wanna first start with the here and now. Tariq, for much of edible arrangements, now known as Edible's 25 year existence, you have been at the helm. More recently, you passed the reins along to your daughter, Somia. What was the catalyst? Oh, I mean, it comes time to pass yeah. to the next generation because uh, you know the brand has to reinvent. There's a new generation and uh, 25 years is a long time, yeah. you know, and, and it's exciting, and especially when it's passing it on to your daughter. And I think it's time for the brand to evolve for the future. And, you know, 25 years ago when we started, it was all looking forward, and uh, it's such an honor to be doing that right now. Yeah. You say there comes a time when the brand has to evolve, you have to step down. We see a number of boomerang CEOs like Bob mm -hmm. Iger at Disney. Mm -hmm. We see the Warren Buffetts of the world who stay on well into their 90s. How do you determine when it is time to pass the reins, when it's time to step down? I think in a family business, you're always involved, right? And you have to be involved. But you know, as the world changes and you know, kind of the new technologies, new things are coming in, you know, we were transformative at one point, and I think it comes time that the next generation will take it to a whole new level. I see the ideas that Somia has, and a lot of those things aren't as close and as much of an interest to me, but the things that I'm focused on, I feel I can support a lot the way people supported me at that time. And I, I'm, I'm a believer in you, you do it sooner than later. Because, you know, one, you get to enjoy the success of the next generation. And second, I, I think you can do a, a very uh, uh, good supporting act and everything in, in this overall success. You all have recently transitioned where obviously you're still remaining on a CEO, but you've been elevated to president. Talk to us about how you collaborate with one another and the catalyst behind that pivot. I think for us, it's really about understanding what that next generation of consumers is looking for. Consumer behavior evolves. It's evolved even more in the last few years and really rapidly. So it's understanding, you know, how can we make um, their lives a lot easier when it comes to gifting and having that perfect gift or treat for whatever moment it is and making those special moments extra special. So there's a lot of different tools and ways to do that. And a big one for us that we're exploring right now is personalization. Um, how do we help them feel like they are a part of that gifting process? And how do we make sure that the recipient who's receiving it feels like there's thought and care put into it? So the team's exploring a variety of different avenues that'll allow us to figure out how we tap into that next generation because it's important for us to bring in that new consumer um, and what will drive them is very different than what drives our current consumer. Yeah, so what drives Gen Z? I think they look for impact. I think they want to shop with brands that are impactful 
um, and have a purpose. I think for me, one of the priorities is to make, continue to make Edible a very purpose-driven brand. Food is like a, it's a, it's universal, right? And food gifting is universal. Growing up, we used to go to Pakistan a lot. And when we're driving to a family member's house, a friend's house, you always stop by and pick up fruit from a stand or a baked good. And I think that's, um, it's like that for people across cultures. Um, and it's nice for us to be able to be a part of that and think about, you know, how do we um, make an impact, but how do we continue to become more global as well? Certainly circle back on your globalization strategy mm -hmm. in, in just a few minutes. I am interested in how the two of you collaborate, obviously even elevated to a higher position. Father is still there. How do you make that work and how do you support one another through this process as you bring in new ideas and you're the one who has the, the many years of wisdom that come along with that? Um, yeah, I can take that. Yeah, I think I, I look at, you know, my dad more as a coach, right? So if we have ideas or if, we, if I want to kick up a program, it's really more tell me what I'm not thinking about or tell me what's wrong. I don't think ideas in our family and in our business, ideas never get shot down. It's never a no. It's try, fail fast. And if you fail, learn before you try it again. Um, and I think that's been instilled in me since I was really young and I've been able to carry that forward with the team as well. So it's nice to be able to bounce ideas off of each other. Yeah, curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, she's being modest now. She's, she's been brilliant from a very young age and was involved in the business and has great ideas. I, I think I have to do a lot more because I, I want to give the freedom. And I think, it, you know, as you pass the baton, you want to give them uh, the opportunity to, you know, not necessarily fail because my job is to make sure yeah. that to kind of caution on, be careful here and things like that. Um, and it's, uh, for me, it would be more from uh, brawn to brain. My grandfather used to say that a lot, that, hey, you want to get from brawn to brain, that one day the body's not going to keep up, but your brain's only going to be better. And uh, so I think from that point, she has a lot of experience. And, and in an entrepreneurial family, you may not think your family's being trained to be an entrepreneur, but at the dining table, when you're driving, you're constantly managing business and they're learning. So, uh, you know, one, very well prepared. Second, just making myself available. And, and Somia just does a brilliant job at yeah. uh, kind of bringing ideas and being brave about things. And in, as an entrepreneur, it's really about taking risk. And if you can calculate those with some experience, it's even better. How do you see yourself uh, making your own mark on this company, bringing your own stamp, and what makes it markedly different? Yeah, that's a great question. We're both very different in our leadership styles. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Um, <laughs> at least I, I think the entrepreneurial spirit is there, which is really important. I think any good leader needs to have that entrepreneurial spirit in the way they work and you know how they encourage their teams. But um, I'm very data-driven. We were actually just talking about this earlier. I um, always liked things to be perfect before launch or before a new initiative is starting. And I've had to learn to be okay with a little bit of gray area and a little bit of uncertainty. And there's just times when you have to go, have to go with your heart or your gut. One thing that I've learned from my dad is leading with passion, right? It's, it's important to make sure that you're injecting passion and purpose into the brand. And the data's there. It's important to look at the data as well, but there is a really fine balance. Yeah, and just making sure that you know, you're know you listening to that gut whenever you can and knowing that, hey, there's something else here that we gotta think about. But it seems as though you still use the numbers to drive you or to yes. drive strategy. <laughs> Definitely. And then rely secondly, secondarily on, on the gut check. Mm -hmm. What about you? Yeah, no, I, I think I, that's where I have to help yeah. her and she has yeah. to help me on the part of, <laughs> yeah. we don't have, you know, like we don't need data, but uh, 
so I, I, it, make, it does make a great tag team. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that there's a lot of things that I'll have an idea and she has a totally different approach to it. Can you give but me four instances? Um, you know, I may want to launch a product, so I'll go out and, you know, previously I'll go out and I'll sit with the team and say, we want to launch this product. And long time ago, you can get away with just launching it and, and figuring it out. But as, especially now, as we're facing uh, higher interest rates and, you know, higher labor costs and everything, you want to be careful. So I think on that, where her approach of data, so I, I think uh, you have to come up with some kind of a formula. I don't, I don't think you can ever figure anything out 100%. Long time ago, I used to say, as soon as you have a 60% figured out, go. The rest of it, you figure out as you go, because you'll never be 100%. You know, maybe it's 80. I, 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 you know, so I think between that, where if I have an idea, she'll have her approach, or even our team. Our, our mm -hmm. team just does a great job. And, uh, and I th but I think that combination or that dance, as we call it, is very, very important. That, that you know, you want to have data, but as Somia said, you don't want to be just stuck on that, too, because you'll never make a decision. Yeah. Uh, your father just made this interesting point that you grew up, obviously, in this entrepreneurial family. There were a lot of teachings along the way, sitting at the dining room table, for instance. One could say you got an MBA your whole <laughs> life. Uh, talk to us about that experience and, and the impact it's made in your current role. Yeah. I um, have been in the store since I was six years old. Um, I used to go on the road with him to open stores. So I've seen them built from the ground up. Um, I got to meet a lot of our franchisees at a very young age. So I think just being in that environment, you're always listening to the conversations you know, with franchisees, with team members. Now I realize how much I actually absorbed during those conversations. And it was you know, not, and it wasn't always big things. It was sometimes it was as little as, hey, um, you know, always take care of the customer or if when you, whenever you pick up the phone, make sure you're smiling because the customer can, they see they can hear it on the other end, right? So it's little things like that of customer care and providing that customer experience that I picked up on at a really young age that I've been able to carry forward. And just like building relationships with partners and franchisees. Those are just some of the things that I've learned, but there's endless examples. I want to touch on your background. Before mm. I do, however, um, obviously Edible Arrangements has many stores globally, as you already attested to. Um, and certainly where I live in Upper West Side, there are a number of Edible Arrangements stores. However, we know that brick and mortar stores, a lot of them are shuttering. There's less foot mm -hmm. traffic. Mm -hmm. So how do you still engage your consumers? Well, I, I, I like, you know, I, this whole part of brick and mortar shuttering has been around you know since the 80s you know th that people will always talk about maybe the days of retail is over i think it's how you present retail is changing you know so i think it's more of a, about an experience uh, and we're going through this interesting transformation right now after 25 years of having retail locations during the pandemic everybody thought that maybe we'll go to ghost kitchens and we won't really have retail where retail is coming back very strong. People want that experience. People want, you know, that now it's more last minute than ever. There's an interesting uh, change going on that happened during the 80s, you know, when 800 numbers came out and credit cards came out. Everybody thought everybody was going to place orders over the phone. No one's going to come into a store where we have to evolve the stores for the next, uh, you know, generation and everything. And at the same time, there's just nice combination of what we call edible.com and edible.store. And so we have to win both of those experiences and have to do a great job and everything. And I think part of that, what Somia has done a great job is on the whole dot-com side. That's where she started on the digital side and, and, and just has bought in some great things. And, and at the same time, a lot of those things are coming into the store now. Mm -hmm. So what changes in the store? Yeah, we, so we, are, um, we have a next-gen retail model that we're working on right now. 
It's very experiential. It's very digitally driven. Um, you can walk in and get any kind of food gift um, or treat for yourself, no matter the occasion or the moment. Um, so it's all about that ease and convenience, the speed, uh, without sacrificing the quality and the freshness. We have uh, about five stores opening next year across the country um, and hoping to sell another 20 stores. And uh, the digital aspect is really important. So we have a really strong e-commerce platform and we're looking for ways to continue to build a really strong omni-channel presence and inject more of a digital experience into the stores as well. Personalization, like do you want to be able to go in and personalize a gift, add, you know, uh, a picture, uh, you know, to the container or to the card, uh, and be it even printed on the, you know, on a cheesecake or something like that. So there's a lot going on of personalization, and then even, uh, uh, you know, the speed. I would say the speed is the biggest thing right now. Where, you know, ten years ago you can say, you know, we'll deliver tomorrow. Now you have to think about how to deliver in an hour. And to do the same experience, because we started with a wow. We started really, really simple, and, and you know, there's a great story behind it where uh, we didn't have much budget, and we would guarantee that this gift will wow. The person who's receiving it, if they don't use the word wow, call us, we'll give you your money back. Um, and and you know, it's so nice to be able to deliver on that even now when you're trying to deliver something within an hour. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, great job by the franchisees, that evolution uh, of keeping up with the times and everything. So I think the, the speed part and to deliver a perfect gift within an hour and to be able to pull it off, uh, you know, I think that's yeah. a great accomplishment. And I'd, I'd add also the variety in the offering. So most people have known us for the large fruit baskets, but you don't always have a need for a fruit basket that's going to feed five or six people. You might want something smaller. So the offering has expanded significantly as well. So from you know a, a single cheesecake or strawberry to a bouquet of flowers to a box of cookies. I think that's the other thing that's really unique with um, where we're going with NextGen. It's just the offering is so much wider and it gives you so many more reasons to interact with the brand. And it's because it's about moments, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's, it's not about those big occasions anymore. It's those little moments that you want to celebrate. You know, sort of where you can send an emoji, we like to be able to send an edible arrangement. Absolutely. Well, that's an interesting point you make uh, because as we know, we're seeing higher inflation, higher interest rates. Um, certainly the younger generation, millennials and Gen Z are feeling that their wallets are getting very tightly pinched. So how do you get them to justify that in many ways they're paying for a quote unquote overpriced fruit? Yeah, we've had to do a lot of work to shift that perception. Um, uh, when I took over the e-commerce team in 2019, one of the first things that we did was launch gifts under 50. Um, we'd never had a category called under 50 before. Um, very limited offering in that space. So we expanded it, added new SKUs, and very quickly saw it um, convert at a really high rate, which was nice. And I think that helped us introduce a new generation to the brand. So that year that we launched it, we saw a 100% increase in purchases from Gen Z. Um, so I think that's something we're going to continue with, especially in times when discretionary income is limited. Because in the end, I think it's really important for us to be an approachable brand. And we want people to really enjoy the product and know that you don't have to buy a whole lot to have that enjoyment. Is So Issa Rae did an interview recently with The Cut. You might have seen this. Yes. And she was talking about etiquette. And she said that she absolutely does not want to receive an edible arrangement. She said, you know, it's just too much for her to finish at once. It's a bit wasteful um, it, and so on and so forth. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that kind of criticism on, and how you approach sharp criticism. Are you finding that people are very pro-edible arrangements and others are very anti or, or what, what, what are you seeing in the market? 
Yeah, I, um, so it's interesting. I think for us, we see that criticism. I've been in interviews or, you know, speaking on a panel where someone will say something like, Edible Arrangements is a granny brand or it's a grandma brand, right? And I think that just fuels the fire even more to change the brand perception and make it more modern and elevated. I love Issa Rae, so when we saw that, we were like, okay, you know, this is, is, it's a tough situation, but at the same time, it just shows us the opportunity that we have to redefine the brand and what the brand is all about and really redefine the offering that we have. Um, so we take it, we take that criticism and really look at it as an opportunity to continue to show the world how we've grown and how much the brand has changed in the last few years. And I love granny brands, but why? Yeah. <laughs> because who doesn't love grandparents, right? So, uh, and, and not only that, it's gifting. Gifting is supposed to be special. When you send somebody, who wants to send a cheap gift? Right? Who wants to be known at sending something, you know? So we, we always, we want to do that hand delivery. We want to uh, almost add that little personal touch. And what I love about franchising is there's a small business owner that the order goes to who lives in that neighborhood who's going to do that little personal touch. And my mother used to have this tradition. She would be in the back of the stores, didn't really speak English. Whenever a customer would come in, she would always come and do a finishing touch on a bouquet always. And, and you know, she would compliment the customer, say, thank you for coming in. Here's a little thing I'm adding. And the customers will always remember that. And with the gift, gift is always about a wow. You can't make everybody happy, but our thing is that as long as we can make 99.9% of them happy, we're in good shape. So I mean, our, our stats are pretty good. Our franchisees do an amazing job you know, of getting every order out and making it perfect. And we want to make it a premium. You know, no one should feel that this was a cheap gift. Yeah. And especially when it's food, you gotta not only get the aesthetics right, it's gotta look great, it's gotta taste great, and it's gotta give you that great feeling. And, and we wanna make sure we deliver on that. Does that premium branding still work if you're making this pivot to you know marketing it as something to get, not just for those iconic moments or big holidays, but just as a, you go, you got it through the week? Yeah, I think it's 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 the experience, right? It's that hand delivery. Um, it's the packaging. So as we go through this rebrand, we're revamping all of that packaging. Um, it's really taking that unboxing approach to the next level. So I think um, it, it hits across areas. It's not just specific to the price point and that accessibility. It's really about the overall experience that still makes it a wow. What's your demographic to date? Today, it's, it's pretty broad. Um, women over the age of, of 35, we're starting to come younger and get more into uh, younger millennials and Gen Z. So, um, you know, with the power of data, we're able to do a lot of segmentation and create uh, messaging that's specific to each audience. So it's no longer targeting one, one audience. It's really about um, having multiple audiences and they change throughout the year, right? So for example, during Valentine's Day, our audience is incredibly male heavy. Um, so our messaging shifts accordingly. So it, it's pretty dynamic, um, but when it comes to the tone of voice, um, our content, it is starting to skew a little younger to start to introduce the brand to that next generation of consumers. Speaking of marketing, uh, you changed your name from Edible Arrangements, which you've always been known for, to just Edible, Edible Brands. When I think of edibles, I think of cannabis, obviously, and some wild nights in college. So what, what, what was the thinking behind that, that pivot? Oh, people called us edible from the beginning. I mean, so, you know, we were known as Edible Arrangement and, uh, you know, back in 2006, 2007, you know, customers would call and they'd say, you know, use the word edible uh, to describe us because they left the arrangement part off. Uh, so for us, the evolution was from edible arrangements to edible was because that's where our customers were 
saying. Um, and we saw a broader opportunity as we go to, the, you know, as we broaden the offerings and everything. It was never really cannabis in mind back then when we started. And it's just, that's what's catching up now. And so it's not connected with cannabis, but you know, we'll see where it goes. Do you see yourself exploring cannabis infused, I don't know, melons, skewered melons? <laughs> Look, I think, um, it's, it's an opportunity, sure. you know, I think for us um, as a brand, as we start to think about cannabis, it's really more from a health and wellness angle. If there ever is an opportunity there, it's about continuing to spread goodness and um, helping people feel good. Um, it's something that our executive team talks about a lot. We talk about it all the time and um, it, it may happen one day, it's just not today. Do you see that harm in the brand at all? Because when I think about edible arrangements, I know you use the term granny, but I do see it as being very homely, mm -hmm. um, you know? So, so do you see any impact in terms of brand and if you did make that foray into cannabis? Uh, no, I don't. Look, I, I think that's the job of the brand, right? So um, I, I think, you know, we, if our objective as a brand from the beginning has been to wow, so we better make sure that does not get compromised. And fortunately, unfortunately, whatever you want to call it, this is what the consumers are taking, the, you know, the cannabis towards, right? That, that, that's what's happening. And so I, I, I think there's a health and wellness opportunity there, and we'll figure it out when the time comes, because even now there's a lot of confusion on where this is going but we don't you know we're a gifting brand and I and I think nothing better than gifting health and wellness yeah and look if they imbibe in some cannabis and they'll get the munchies and they'll go and order more <laughs> chocolate and fruit from your website it does have a secondary <laughs> exactly well Tarek I'd love to focus um, you know on, on your background and I know you talked about it at length but for our viewers who might not know you give us a little bit of background information about yourself where did you grow up what did your parents do who is Tarek and how did you yeah, landed in the U.S. at uh, 12 years old, kind of following the family. Uh, grew up in uh, for the first 12 years in Pakistan in a farming family. My father came here a few years before us, uh, worked as a machinist, uh, and then worked at Burger King, McDonald's. So when I got here at 12, uh, you had to help, as any you know, most immigrant families, everybody works. So had to help uh, um, and got involved, and you know, first started delivering newspapers when I was 11, 12 years old cutting grass and all of that, and then landed an amazing job at, uh, at Ferricelli's Flowers in West Haven, Connecticut with Charlie Ferricelli. Uh, one of those neighborhood entrepreneurs who wants to take care of all the, you know, all the employees that are working for him and everything, and I learned a lot from him, and had an opportunity to buy a flower shop that had you know, closed for about $6,000. So my father's boss gave me a 17-year-old a, a $6,000 loan to go uh, open a flower shop and um, always loved computers. So started to kind of balance uh, an IT business with the flower business and just did phenomenal, you know. And then fast forward, 90, you know, 99, 98, had this opportunity of doing fruit arrangements. And we started it in a small little section of our flower shop and it just took off. And, and so here we are, you know, thousands of us stores later, and it has nothing to do with the cannabis. You know? <laughs> so very, very excited maybe about a the little brand bit, as well. Maybe a little bit to do with the cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. I mean, $6,000, given that to a 17-year-old, why? Well, I, I think somebody has to ask Bill and Denise Holberg, how do you make that decision where back then $6,000 in 80 was a lot to give to a 17-year-old, but I made sure that we paid that back within a year and a half. Um, and I, you know, I, I think when I do ask him, he does say that, well, I, I believed you would be successful. And I thought, you know, and, and it was just worked hard. The only thing I knew at that time is to work hard. I saw my father work hard, I saw my mother work hard. 
And you really didn't have a choice. It was not like there was a selection. Even if you were going to go to school, uh, if you're going to college, you had to decide. You were helping the family. Should I go or not? And that's what happened with me, where a lot of those opportunities. I, I actually wrote a paper in middle school that I wanted to be a, a, a surgeon. You know, I'm glad I did what I did because the, when the family needed help, I started working and I learned so much. So by 17, I knew how to run a business and never looked back. Running a flower shop is pretty straightforward. How did you go from that to let me buy fruit, craft it, turn it into flowers, put it on skewers, and sell this as part of an arrangement? I mean, how, that, that's quite the pivot. So, so I think everybody thinks running flower, flower shops, I would tell you florists are probably some of the hardest working people sure. in the world. You got to remember that this is fresh flowers you got to get, you got to treat them. There's a lot involved. So my training in the floral helped me on my train being prepared for the, the, the fruit part. So I, I think that journey made it easier. And, and, you know, in the beginning, it was a lot of hard work. I mean, we did not have the funds to go. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a, a big business plan in the beginning and tried to borrow 120000 It got rejected because no one thought the idea was going to work. Uh, so we went ahead and just bootstrapped it. Um, and, but along the journey, having all that experience in the flowers really helped. And, and I think at, at the end of it, it's about the customer. Uh, you know, we made the first holiday was Easter in 1999. And we made 28 arrangements, and it took us all day to make 28 orders. It, it, because we had no equipment, we were hand cutting everything. Every customer called and said, "Wow, you know, can I order another one? You know, this is amazing. You know, I didn't know you guys made this." And we knew as soon as the customers, you see the customers' response, you knew you're on to something. And at that point, there's no looking back. You figure out how to, you know, automate and get more equipment and we had things where even containers you know I, I made trips to China back then to try to find containers that were food safe because before that it was all about flowers and you couldn't put the uh, the fruit arrangements in to those containers so we had to get our own containers that started a whole new business for us called Berry Direct which is where our sourcing is and everything and then needed a website so we started a, another business called Netsalis that would do all the technology and the POS systems and everything. So everything kind of just came together. It was like an ecosystem. You said you had to bootstrap. You were turned down for a loan. I'm assuming a bank loan. What did that look like in practice, bootstrapping? How did you get financing? Oh, you just don't make any money. You put extra miles on the car. You negotiate with the landlord. You go and negotiate with the uh, with the vendors. But I'll tell you that having that hunger is really good on the customer side because you really want to take care of that customer because you want them to tell 10 other people. And that's what worked really well for us. I mean, you know, we're still low debt and, you know, one of those things that, that created a habit of live within your means. At what point did you think to yourself, wow, I've made it? What, what was that point where you got a pretty sizable check? And you said to yourself, wow, I'm really onto something here. Uh, um, for me, the first time was probably when my accountant told me you owe a lot of taxes. And I'm like, taxes? What do I owe taxes for? I, I didn't know we made that much money. And he shows it to me. He goes, oh, you made good money here. And you reinvested it. So at that time, when I saw the first tax bill, I'm like, oh, okay, we made it. You know, So, so I, I would say it was probably more that. But I, I don't think you're ever done because, you know, when you start this, a lot of people will look at, you know, along the journey, people will say, when is enough? Uh, when you're focused on the customer and when you're focused on building a brand, it's never necessarily about a destination, it's about the journey. 
And so I think with that, um, it's exciting what we see now as the opportunity. For me, the true aha moment is when somebody knocked on our door and said, I want to buy a franchise. Yeah. That's when we knew, like, wow, you, you want to do what? Uh, you know, I'd love to buy a franchise. I want to open up one in Boston. And then, you know, so it's, it's that saying, uh, you know, great brands are bought, never sold. So if somebody comes to you, that means yeah. you have, you've built something and they want that. Yeah. You, you know, you've got something. So for me, that was probably the aha moment from a brand point of view. But from a personal point of view, it would be, you know, when you start to see where you can pay the rent and, and, and not have to struggle with funds. I know you said, you know, you're, you're never thinking, there have been multiple times in your career where you had that, aha, I did it, I'm onto something movement. Obviously financial metrics are mm -hmm. a huge milestone for most business owners, certainly small business owners. Walk us through how you made your first million. Yeah, uh, you know, um, same, same thing. We uh, opened our first, uh, we, so I had a flower shop and our, our first flower shop in East Haven, Connecticut, um, hit 1.2 million in sales. And the day that it hit million, there was a big celebration because back then, that was the goal for a small business owner. You know, if you can make it to that, you can afford to hire more, you can turn around and get into a little better location. And your brand has made it because that's, that's you know, thousands and thousands of customers who are coming in and recognizing your brand. Uh, so for me, you know, it wasn't necessarily about the money, but it was that now this, this business is self-sustaining. So now we can move on to the next location. Um, and I, th I think you just have to prove one out. And if you could prove one out, then doing multiple or getting to, it, you know, getting to 100 locations is not hard. I would say that million is probably was the hardest journey. But once you hit that, then, you know, I, I don't remember when we hit 100 million or 200 million. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think we ever stopped at that point. And the million was the hardest journey because? Because, you, you know, one, you, you don't have the means to do it. It's not like, you know, I, as I had mentioned earlier, I couldn't get loans because when people looked at it, they looked at this concept of fruit in baskets and didn't think it was going to work. And, um, and then the rest of it is just, you know, you're just selling and you're going month to month. And we were never really trying to hit a million. You know, it's not like you were, you, you, even now, it's about the quality of, of the delivery and making sure the experience of the customer. So I think majority of the businesses that hit a million, it is usually a surprise. Uh, but once you hit it, you know you have a, a great location. Now you can go to any landlord and say that I have a business, this is what it does in sales, I'd like to get a location, it, the, the doors are gonna open for you. So I, I think that journey is hard because um, for us especially, we did not have access to funds. And, I, and that, is, that has been the struggle and there will always be the struggle for startups or small businesses of getting funding. And especially as a minority, it was even harder. So, I, and I think making it now, and, and the biggest thing wasn't that you hit a million, you feel that you're self-sustaining now. And you know, I think I can make it, and I can share this experience with others. Uh, and you know, that's that's more more achieving that milestone. You within two years, or roughly two years of launch, uh, you franchise your first mm -hmm. edible arrangements. Was that your plan all along? I pretended it was my plan all along, but uh, we wanted to scale, but we weren't sure which way. So when I first thought that we can get a loan, our plan was to open multiple locations. Uh, but I heard about franchising um, and didn't think we can pull it off until somebody walked in. So I knew about franchising. I worked at McDonald's. It was one of the best jobs I ever had, you know, at Burger King and McDonald's. Why? And, um, it, well, my father worked there, so I got a job, uh, you know, back then when you were 15, if you did really good in school, 
um, you know, they gave you a work permit to work, and then my father's boss at Burger King gave me a job. So I would actually take a bus from West Haven, Connecticut to Milford. It was about a, a one-hour bus ride, and I would go after school, from middle school, I would go and um, work there. It was, it was just the process. They had systems, and, and everything was a process. And from there, I ended up going to McDonald's and did really well. And so I always had that in the back of my head that there's this concept of franchising, didn't understand it. You know, only knew the inner workings, not how you franchise a business. But when the opportunity came, somebody walked into our store and says, hey, I'm, you know, I, I'm in Boston and um, I love to build one of your stores. Do you offer franchises? I had heard the word franchise. So of course, at that point, I'm like, of course, we've been thinking about it, let's do it. Um, and we were able to pull it together real quickly and, and, and it was probably one of the best things we did. Well, since that uh, serendipitous day, you've expanded into Texas and other areas uh, within the continental U.S. You've expanded globally into China uh, and certainly other countries. How do you determine what makes sense in terms of expansion? And are you still looking to scale uh, your physical footprint? Yeah, I think the for this, this year and for next year, the focus is really on the continental U.S. and building the next-gen stores here. But always looking for opportunities um, all over the globe. And it's really about finding the right partner and a partner who has scale and who can um, come and have, they have the operations and the strong, uh, strong business acumen, financial acumen uh, to take our brand and to localize it. Um, something I think we've learned from our international expansion mm -hmm. is that what works here doesn't always translate in other parts of the world. For instance. Um, for instance, certain fruits may not be available, or there might be other fruits that are widely available. So for example, in the Middle East, our arrangements have dates in them, right? But they don't have dates in the US. So what we've done is with our international partners, given them um, the opportunity to do their own innovation um, and come up with their own products and uh, really let them drive the bus from that perspective because they know what their consumer is looking for and they know the market really well. And I think that'll be the strategy as we continue to expand globally. Localized innovation, right? Localized yeah. innovation experience. But at the same time, I, I think with the whole e-commerce and this social media phenomenon, the world has shrunk. And so the opportunity, so where we may have had an opportunity of, let's say, a couple of thousand locations in the U.S., now it's more like six or 7,000 locations globally. Mm -hmm. that you, you know, and you can do that where you can give a consistent experience on the web level, it's sort of the Uber, right? So we would love edible.com to be the booking.com of gifting, right? So where you could go anywhere in the world and send a gift and people are, you know, kind of moving a lot, you know, so now it's not about countries, it is about, you know, kind of global different countries and everything. Um, so I think the experience at the store will be very different, but online it'll be pretty consistent. So it'd be nice to be able to send somebody in Dubai a gift in a minute and we'd love to solve for that. I want to look at uh, you know financial metrics in the early days. What did sales look like? Let's say the first five years, and mm -hmm. how does that compare to now? Uh, it, pretty consistent. I mean, uh, you know, sales. Of course, you know, one thing as entrepreneurs, you have to be prepared for you know the good days and the bad days and everything. And and we can pretty much say we've gone through everything. You know, so especially with what what happened over the last few years. Um, but you know, th there's a consistency to that. As long as people are celebrating, there's 
there's always going to be a need. Uh, so our sales have always been steady. The, the objective now is to try to get our stores, most of our stores, to a million, million something uh, in average sales. Um, and customize each store where they own that neighborhood. It's, you know, so that franchise owner really gets to know the neighborhood and, and, and is uh, advertising and promoting according to the neighborhood. So for, with that, it's pretty hard to have a consistent stat that every one of your stores is going to do the same. Every store is according to either the team or the owner as to you know, how involved they're in the community and everything. But we could deliver a lot from the web level now where you know, people look for convenience and we can give a pretty consistent experience. Uh, and now we're even doing third party. Mm -hmm. So I think the opportunity is much bigger now than before because you can reach so many customers. We have stores now that have 15, 1,600 people on every day following what's happening at that store. So as that store puts up uh, in, in information about, oh, I'm making this today, or we have this product coming in, people place orders. I haven't seen that. I'm blown away with that. Where before you had to do mailers and send things out and invite people for samples, where now you can really do it online on a social media and be interacting with customers in real time. So the I, mean, I, I think the potential is bigger than ever before. We're obviously a business publication, so I have to ask, what are your projected sales for 2023? Yeah, we're looking at uh, just at about 500 million um, for this year. Um, and from a store perspective, something else to add, even four or five years ago, we didn't have all of these categories and offerings. It was just arrangements and dip fruits. Now we have flowers, we have cheesecakes, cookies, a whole bake shop line. Uh, we have chocolates. So I think introducing all of these new offerings and categories is what will help get our stores to that 800K to a million mark. Um, which we just never had before. There's only so many arrangements you can sell, right? Like I said earlier, you don't have, there isn't always a need for an arrangement, but there's usually a need for a small treat, um, even if it's just a single cheesecake. So I think introducing these product offerings is really what's going to help us increase that average unit volume. I've seen estimates that your company is valued at about 600 million. Are you eyeing 1 billion, forging forward? Is, is that the next metric for you, hitting that unicorn status? Uh, look, all of us, of course, as entrepreneurs, yeah. you know, there's a different level of success. And for me, the success is always the quality of something, not necessarily the quantity. Right? But the so quantity, think, going back, she said she likes data points. Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I, I'll share this with you. Like my mother, I, when I started out and I was only 18 years old, I would walk in every every day I would walk home and I wasn't happy. And my mother's like, you know, what's going on? I'm like, I'm not enough sales. And she said something. She goes, you know, honey, stop chasing money. Money runs really fast. Go do the right thing. They'll chase you. And so I think with that, you know, the, that part of making sure you take care of the customer, I don't want to compromise that. That's the big thing. And mm -hmm. I think there's a nice balance here um, where, um, you know, even now, if you look at it post the pandemic, people are looking for a nice life balance, right? The number of hours you work, the things that, you know, what you want to do. And I think our brand offers that, um, you know, could we achieve a billion? Yeah, you know, but I don't want to lose money by getting there. You know, there are a lot of brands that will achieve that, but then at this, the health of the brand isn't good. For me, the health of the brand is very, very good. And I, and I think it's a journey, right? It's mm -hmm. a journey where it's one brick at a time and you want to have solid, steady growth. I sit here right now to sit here at 500 million when in the first year we did $192,000 in sales. You know, like I'm in awe. Yeah. So I think you just want to make sure we slowly, steady, have solid growth.
do you see yourselves keeping this as a family business? Do you see yourselves selling it at some point, maybe to private equity, IPOing if you get that far in advance? Is there all, an exit strategy? All of the above. Yeah, <laughs> all the options yeah. on the table. We talk about every single yes. one of those options yeah, yeah, regularly. Yeah. 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 And look, the public part, I mean, when you're living an American dream, I, I think that's part of the American dream. If you could take your brand and, and you could you know, take it public and you can make it part of the American fabric. Uh, so we're in awe that you know, it's a household name. And you know, there is the next stage of looking at, we'll weigh that when that time comes and everything. If it's right for the brand, if it's right for the team, that's what we will do. Uh, and I think you know, those are th options that we're looking at right now. And I, I will say, I see a better runway now than I've ever seen before. So I think from that point, you know, we may be talking about this stuff soon. Excited. Well, keep fortune in mind when you're ready yeah, to, uh, to share that done. story. I know we're running up on time, so I'm going to do rapid fire questions. And this is, this is for the both of you. Uh, is there ever a time when it's not appropriate to send an edible arrangement? I don't think so. I think there's always an occasion and a moment to send an edible. So look, I, you know, when we started, we had occasions where the guy or the gal is in trouble and they need yeah. rescue right away. Uh, there's an edible for that, you know? So, uh, uh, you know, so I, I think there is no reason to, that you wouldn't want to give a gift, you know? So I think everybody likes a gift. Everybody likes a surprise. Um, so I, 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 no, I, I don't think there, yeah. there is a reason. And then we almost have product for everyone right now. Yeah. Now, previously, yeah, there could have been that somebody doesn't like fruit. And I would, of course, give them a weird look, like, what do you mean you don't like fruit? But now we have flowers, we have cheesecakes, we have all these occasions. So what I love about our brand right now is that there is a, you know, th th there's a gift for everyone in the house because sometimes customers will call and say, oh, my mom doesn't like chocolate. And then we would struggle there as into what to do there. But now we can send mom a beautiful rose bouquet that she can enjoy for a week. Um, so, you know, no, there, there is no reason that somebody shouldn't be sending an album arrangement. Everybody needs to send an album arrangement. Well, piggyback off of that, you're likely familiar with this already, but there's a scene in the Netflix show, The Fall of the House, of Usher, in which the protagonist tells her assistant, everybody knows that edible arrangements are what you send to people <laughs> you hate. Do you have any data that suggests people are hate sending edible arrangements? Uh, I don't know. I'll have to ask the team on that one if we've seen that. But we actually, so we sent the actress, Kate, um, a, an edible arrangement gift. You did. Um, with a little note, you know, thanks for the shout out. Just want to let you know that there's more than just edible arrangements available at Edible. Um, and she posted it on her Instagram story and gave us a shout out and said it was low-key brilliant. So it's really when we see interactions like that happen, um, we always like to play into it and be a part of it. Um, and it's always nice to see their reaction after the fact. So um, we were we were actually, when we saw that, um, we had a bunch of team members who were watching the show yeah. and we were like, oh my God, she just talked about edible arrangements. So we take it as flattery in a sense. Free marketing. Yes, exactly. And, and I love that she said that you send it to people you hate. So now you have a gift to send to people you hate. I love that. You so know, there that's is what no we should reason be doing. We should be sending away. something sweet to people we hate. That's what we should do. Uh, let me ask you this. Well, first of all, and most important question, what's your favorite fruit? Um, for me, pineapple. Yeah. Mango. Okay. Uh, any celebrity super fans of edible arrangements? Um, I'd say... I don't know if he's, I don't know if he would call himself a super fan, but Jimmy Fallon has featured us quite a bit on his show. So we've been in a variety of skits and um, he's featured us quite a bit over the last few years. 
And Brad Pitt did a, a, a little stint with an arrangement. Since then, he's been with my Jimmy favorite. Fallon. Yeah, yep. so <laughs> I'd call that a super fan. Uh, and then last remaining questions: best business advice you've received, worst business advice you've received. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll give you the best one, um, uh, and it would probably be from you. When you hit that fifty percent mark with an idea, go and iterate from there. So don't wait to launch something. Don't wait for the data to be perfect. Um, if you have the idea and if it's you know half baked and half there, run with it and know that you can just take an incremental approach to make it better. Yeah, progress over perfection. Yes. Uh, all the best advice I ever got. It was probably the first advice I ever got. Customer is king. Always take care of the customer. Everything will work out. Worst business advice you've ever received. I, I would say I, I've been lucky that uh, you know got a lot of business worst business advice probably hasn't haven't followed it you know lucky enough to, you know live within the means you know so um, you know I, I can't think of any worst yeah. business advice right now. Fair enough. Well, final question for the both of you uh, for these rapid fire questions: What makes for a good manager or an effective leader? I think empathy is really important. I think it's important to know and understand your team and your customer, right? If your team is happy and if they feel that you care about them and you understand them, it helps them do the same for our customers. Uh, to support the team, because if you have a team member to support, you know, so I, I think uh, instead of um, telling them how to do it, let the person go figure it out and support them along the way. And, and for me, you know, I've seen that with Somia more than ever, you know, even when she was like 10 years old. Uh, she decided she knew at that point she wants to be in the business and just kind of supporting and kind of guiding is best so i would say for me it's always been you hire a team member for their talent and support them well that's all the time we have thank you both Tarek and somia for joining us on fortune executive exchange i can think of quite a few people who i love but also some who i hate who i'd love to send edible arrangements to but this has been such a robust conversation so thank you Great. thanks for having us well you said you always look for the wow factor yeah. there's certainly a wow factor here Wow. Excellent. That's the response we always want. <laughs>